Hi, I'm Dave Ferguson, pastor of the Collegedale Church here on the campus of Southern Adventist University. Welcome to our podcast. We're going to explore today some of the relevant words of Jesus Christ in Scripture to my life, to your life. So enjoy the message. Rebel, this section of our scriptural review, I'd like to take you through a handful of scriptures as we launch, starting though, if you notice on the screen, with a definition. One of the definitions of a rebel, it could be pronounced rebel, and then there'd be a a verb form, but this is rebel, rebel a noun, a person who rises in opposition and or armed resistance against an established ruler, a rebel. Follow me through some of these words in Exodus chapter 20, the first verse. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And before he will list off ten commands... Ten Commandments. Before God asks anything of us, he comes to save. Remember that I brought you out of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. What's the greatest commandment? Might be asked of Jesus in the New Testament that you, that you love the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. And you shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. I am the Lord your God, the only God, the true God. You're not to make an idol out of a thing or a person or even your very own self. Those that rebel. Not only does my sin create a caustic reaction from the inside out of myself, but God would point out, as our story will today, that inevitably the sin that I choose finds its caustic way into my family if I'm not careful. It is visited upon the third and the fourth generation. If that is not a perfect multi-marketing level recipe for the terrible takeover of the world, I don't know what there is. For if it were only one generation, maybe, maybe we could figure out how to arrest this thing. But that my sin bears fruit in my life that casts off into my children and my children's children and my children's children's children. Can you see how this is prone to exponentiate? But before he would leave us there, he would say, there is an exponentiation of my love. But my Love, showing loving kindness to thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And if we bounce our way to 2 Samuel chapter 12, jumping in about where we left off a couple of weeks or so ago, we will find these words. The Lord sent Nathan to David. You know what has happened. 
And when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor, recapping, luring David's mind in to consider what he had done with Bathsheba and Uriah and his actions. And David listens to this parable and he burns with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Isn't it fascinating that we can be in the wrong and yet filled with a sense of justice on the head of others? He must pay. For that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity, he must pay to the third and the fourth. He must pay. And Nathan says to David, that's you. You're the man. And this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring a calamity upon you. Or as he says in Exodus chapter 20, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the third and the fourth generation for those who have rebelled against me. David, it's going to deteriorate your household. A rebel. A person who rises in opposition to a rightful ruler. By force, by word, by deed. Our established king at a time we celebrate his arrival on this earth. And yet you and I are prone to putting someone else on the throne. Thank you so much. Happy so Sabbath to you. What a delight this, this Christmas season. Rebel. Back from Thanksgiving Lord, God, and a break. Here we, we are continuing as we absorb our sermon series and the stories from the life of David. Scriptures. Would you give Voice. us courage to look today, where you would like us to look? Rebel. And Lord, in those moments that the investigation is painful, would you hurry to spend your grace? There is nothing that has gone on in our lives, nothing we have ever done or that has ever been done to us that you cannot cover in this moment. And so we rely on it, that your spirit is here in Jesus' name. Amen. I am rarely nervous about public speaking and preaching, but I am a little bit nervous today. I had intended, I knew exactly where I wanted to head in scripture because I was going to leapfrog a pretty sizable passage that just felt inconvenient. And, uh, but it was good for me to at least read it as part of the launch in, and I got stuck. I got stuck in it, and God kept talking to me about it. Uh, yesterday, I'll admit to you, I was still trying to get away from it. And partly because of someone close to my wife and I, and their sharing vulnerably, with us some of their experience, this particular passage kept ringing in my ears and I couldn't get away from it. And finally, I decided, okay, I give. 
The reason is because this is a terrible passage of Scripture. By terrible, I mean horrific. It probes into places that we don't often talk about. In large part, we have been silent about. There are reasons that I'm not, I'm not comfortable right in this moment. One of them is that somebody in this room, years and years and years have gone by since the pain, and I'm going to ask you to look in a place of Scripture where that pain may be uncovered once again. It is possible that somebody mid-50s has become comfortable in what they did, and this is going to skewer you to the heart. I'm partly uncomfortable because we have families here with children. And we have a pretty careful approach to how we talk about things, and one of those approaches is to simply ignore them. To attempt to pretend that some things that are awful and evil and have come about through the heart of man don't even really exist. So I would, like to, I would like to just set some ground rules for our conversation because what I am going to be targeting is a high-wire act, a dance across a very thin spot where we talk about what is real, but we do so in a way that parents can be comfortable and children can be safe. And those who have been harmed or those who are the one who has aggrieved can find an open, clear space at the cross. And so here's what we're going to do. First of all, I want to give parents complete permission. I really don't think it's going to be necessary, but I want you to have complete permission to move about as you need to. If for some reason you're a little concerned or worried and it's best for you to get closer to an exit or even outside a little bit, you do what you, you are the parent and I trust you with that role. But I'm going to partner with you because by the way, if you have small children and they are in school, any school, If you are not talking about some of the issues that we are going to need to look at today, someone else is. And it might be somebody their age who does not understand what they're doing. We know this. Social media, video games, entertainment, billboards, just walking through the mall, we are accosted with issues that are at least cousins to where we're headed today. And if we're going to do any battle, we cannot leave it to the world to hold up Jesus Christ on these subjects. For they will not. And we must. So I'm going to ask you to be sure to have your Bible open. Very little of the words we read are going to end up on the screen. And in fact, I am going to substitute and modify the language the Bible uses so that you, parent of very young, can be even more comfortable. But I need to give you a little bit of the code. 
I'm going to use the word force for one word I'm not even going to say, but instead I'm going to give you the verse of Scripture that might be an example. It's elsewhere in Scripture, but if it's 2 Samuel chapter 13 that your heart bumps into here and mine couldn't get away from, I'm going to invite you to take a quick look and I'm going to read it the way I would say it. But he, it's on the screen now, but he refused to listen to her and since he was stronger than she, he forced her. So when I use that kind of language, adults in this room, you know what I'm talking about. In addition, I'm going to leave out a word that I'm going to use just once as I explain it. This word could be parked in front of such words as assault or abuse or violence. But sometimes it makes us exceptionally uncomfortable to say it out loud. And that's to be predicated by the word sexual. So when I say abuse, you know what it is I'm talking about. So when I say assault, you know which kind we are primarily focusing on here. Again, this is some of the strongest conversation you can find in Scripture. It's not only here in 2 Samuel 13. But if you are wondering whether or not it is a worthy endeavor for us to take a minute, we don't do this all the time, and for goodness sakes, not usually with poinsettias. I would caution you, if you think you sit here today where these words we are avoiding do not have application, I must tell you, you are wildly ignorant, not correct. Read on one of our Seventh-day Adventist institutional websites that we should understand if we broaden the word abuse to include other forms as well, that as you look around this room, those who have come through the doors of our churches today, a full 25% have suffered some form. And so if your family is unscathed, I want to suggest to you your family is maybe unaware rather than unscathed. Maybe miraculously you've found a way. But probably someone at your Thanksgiving table doesn't have the courage to share with you. And we would do well to understand that in America today, one in three women and one in six men would claim some form of this specific type of abuse. One in five women are estimated to have suffered under this force. It is the most unreported crime in America. And sociologists tell us it is the most expensive crime in America when you tally the finances involved in the aftermath. And by the way, we are a university church. 
One in five young women going to universities across this nation and one in 16 young men will tell us that they suffered some form of this abuse while at university. Just that short period of time and 90% of them will say nothing to anyone. Do you suppose in a setting like this there might be even added reasons that number might be worse in terms of those willing to say, I'm suffering. In fact, one wonders that we at our Adventist institutions of higher learning are reticent to even do studies to uncover the data because then we'd have to say out loud what the situation is. And so today we're not going to bob and weave and dodge and I'm not going to leapfrog to the 14th chapter. Because God, his spirit, at least I believe so, has not left me alone on this subject. And it starts with these words, in the course of time. What an interesting little phrase, as if to say, and so it goes. In the course of time, you know what the course of time is, that David has become king, that the kingdom has been unified under David, that this powerful, popular king has made an immense mistake, which is ultimately a terrible form of rebellion against God, where he as a king has taken for himself what does not belong to him is not the right of the king. And to protect his identity in doing so, he has now slaughtered one of his best warriors in Uriah, tried to perform some magnanimous act of bringing Bathsheba into his home, but this is not something he gets away with in private, for Nathan will show up. You are that man. And by the way, God says, your declaration, David, of justice being he should pay fourfold God says you're going to pay through your household. It is the way sin works. When we engage in sin, it has a terrible effect on ourselves, but it has this incredible power unleashed to wobble and bounce backgammon through our lives as families as well to the third and the fourth generation. So in the course of time, Amnon, the son of David, Amnon, by the way, is David's oldest son. Amnon has been watching what a king acts like. Amnon is heir to the throne. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, daughter of David, the beautiful sister of Absalom also son of David. By the way, it is amazing how flippantly how casually we will throw the word love around. If you loved me, young woman, young man, I beg of you to consider love used as a bartering tool is no love at all, or at best we would have to say, In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell fully in love with himself. It'll be more and more plain that his is not the kind of love that God intends. So Amnon 
verse 2, becomes obsessed, so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. He made himself ill. I, I've, I've seen it. Where a young man, a young woman, gets so out of sorts with the timing and the recipe that God has provided for us to find fullness that we make ourselves become ill. And obsession is a better word, isn't it? Than love. For she was, and here I'm going to substitute another word, just again to help protect you and let you as a parent be the one to have the conversations that, by the way, you ought to be having. For she was pure. And it seemed impossible, note these words, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. That's the kind of love we're discussing. Now Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab. Jonadab, son of Shimei, who's David's brother. Jonadab is a cousin of Amnon. Jonadab is a cousin of Tamar. Jonadab is engaging in the course of the next few verses in that thing that sometimes guys, maybe even young ladies do, where they take friendship as a sidling up to whatever you're up to. We don't tell on each other. We don't challenge each other. We just help each other out. So, Jonadab watches as Amnon seems to be suffering, and he, and he says, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard? You're the king's son. You're the king's oldest son. You're the king-to-be. You're looking out of it, man. What's going on with you? Won't you tell me? And Amnon says to him, I am in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And Jonadab understands what he means by the word love well enough to know that when he gives him advice, he's going to give him advice to deceive her. Not only to deceive her, but to deceive his father, the king. So here's what you do. You pretend. You pretend. Whether you're a man or a woman, these are the footsteps that lead to full-on rebellion. You live a life of pretense rather than integrity. And you do so in favor of the manipulation and entrapment of others. And so, verse 6, Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I'd, I'd like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat from her hand. I just need to have a little side note asterisk here. And this comes from the heart of a father. 
I am deeply bothered by David's role in this chapter. There is some part of me that hopes that what's part of what's going on here is that this chapter doesn't fully tell the story. And I can kind of create some scenario where David behaves differently and it's just not reported here. But if all we have is a scripture to go by, one of the things you can know is that David, the father of Amnon, the father of Tamar, does not know his own children. For a little later, another one of his sons, Absalom, will speak up in such a way to suggest he could see this coming. But David participates in this terrible story in a way that my heart as a father doesn't know how I would get over. And I want to suggest to the fathers in the room, silence cannot be our go-to behavior. You are better off making a mistake of commission than being silent, distant, uninvolved, and not knowing your own children. And by extension, men and women of the church, we are meant to be the parents some have not had. To be able to see deeply and clearly and graciously and lovingly and to be what God needs us to be. Well, the arrangement is made and Tamar is there. You can search this chapter high and low and you're only going to find one person that does much in the story that you feel good about. And it's Tamar. Tamar is pure. She is courageous. She speaks up. And when the worst possible thing happens, she drags it into the light of day. So David sends word to Tamar and Tamar goes because her brother is sick and she is dutiful and so she heads in verse eight into the house of her brother who's lying down. She takes some dough, she kneads it, makes bread in his sight and then she takes a pan and serves him the bread but he refuses to eat and he barks an order for everyone else to get out. Oh, that we could shout to Tamar, that we could shout to our daughters, that we could shout to our young men, be ever so careful being alone in the wrong place at the wrong time. So many problems occur that way. Just have a friend, another friend, probably not Jonadab. Something to allow you to be accountable to be the person at the end of the day you hope your children will write about. Out they go. And when, in verse 11, she takes this bread to him to eat, he grabs her and says, come, be with me, my sister, 
And just even the wording makes it even harder to hear. By the way, in large part, this is a cousin scenario to one where a young man in a foreign place is taking care of his master's household and Potiphar's wife grabs a hold of him. It isn't just men that do this to women, though it is more than 90% of the time. And by the way, you're going to notice that I'm using pronouns in a very certain sort of way because it's easier to do it that way instead of every time saying, oh yes, and also men. So please, I ask you to decode the scenario and understand well that this happens more and more across the genders. But Joseph is strong enough to get away from Potiphar's wife. And this is not a truth that is universal, that every woman is less strong than every man, but there is something about weight and height and bone density and muscle mass and all of those things that create a differential here that is typical, right? And he now has a hold of her, and the first words out of her mouth, she will echo some Hebrew form of the word no four different times in four different ways. No, my brother. Unless you think that at that day in that culture, being half-brother, half-sister, maybe they get married anyway, especially given what she says in a minute in a desperate attempt to get him to stop No, 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 no. Everything, in spite of what he did with Bathsheba, David is a Torah follower, a law follower. He wants in word, you remember how he viewed the man who stole the sheep. He believes in the law, in the Torah, in the writings of Moses, and he would not allow. This is not just normal. This is the worst of all situations. No, my brother, she says to him. Don't force me. No, again. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. And if you knew enough, you would know right here she's quoting oral scripture from the 34th chapter of Genesis. A chapter in which Leah's daughter Dinah is taken a fancy to by a Canaanite who ends up forcing her. And all of the brothers, the sons of Jacob, will gather together and they will say, this is not done in Israel. It is a wicked thing. She is calling him out. She is saying, don't you know, this is, this is not right, brother. This is not done in Israel. This is not who you are. This is not who we are. There is no ascendancy to the throne you can ever get away from. You are becoming a pagan, a heathen, a Canaanite, an other, a rebel. Don't. But she can see it in his eyes. She says, well, what? What about me? My life will be over. What about you? You will be a mockery. She appeals to him the idea that, you know what, we try to keep these things a secret, but somehow they get out. 
And you'll be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. And then she says this, please, just speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. She's desperate now because that's not likely. Verse 14, but he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he forced her. And then Amnon hated her with an intense hatred. Predictable as the day is long, that that which we label love but is truly obsession and attempt at possession, once we have what we thought we wanted, we loathe that which we said we loved. Young man, young woman, if that's what's happening in a relationship you are a part of where somebody is saying, but come on now, we love each other, we love each other, we love each other anyway, we're going to be in each other's lives, this is what we should do, be careful. Oh, be careful. For all the other terrible things that will happen, you are likely walking into, additionally, the truth that love will turn to loathing. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her in that certain form of that word. And Amnon says to her, get up and get out. No, she says. No, she says, sending me away will be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. And many of us would wonder, whoa, what is she doing? I have noticed that the behavior of those who suffer the greatest forms of abuse is not always predictable or understandable by myself who has not suffered that abuse. And we can become very quickly judgmental and certain about why they're doing what they're doing or what they are saying. Maybe I should back up and just listen, be present, offer stability, In that culture, you should know that for her, the world has just completely crumbled. She will walk from that house as the door behind her bolts shut. For as she puts up a fuss saying, no, don't send me away, he refuses to listen to her. In the 17th verse, he called his personal servant. He won't even touch her to throw her out calls his personal servant and says, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. And by the way, most of our versions have made this nicer than what it really should read. Because we add the word woman where there is no Hebrew inclusion of that word here. The best translation might read, he called his personal servant and said, get this out of my sight. complete and full cycle of objectification as she walks down the road she begins to tear her ornate robe you need to know this robe was given her by her father David this robe is the robe given to a daughter 
before they are married to signify their purity and their identity. For she is a daughter of the king. And this robe proclaims loud and clear to the world around her that she will only be in the very best of all marriages. Her future is secure because she is covered by the king. And she tears her robe, for that future is gone at the hands of another. And she throws dirt and ash on herself, and she covers her head with both hands as if to say there is nothing more in my power to do. And she finds her way to her brother's house where he in some ways takes on the redeemer role of saying, you live here, I will protect you. Again, I don't know all that we could put together about how David is involved in this story, but it's deeply troubling to me. I want to spend a minute on Tamar and those Men or, women, men or women who might associate with what has happened to her, I want to say a few things to you. This has got to be a painful thing to sit and consider because you have been harmed and you have been in that circumstance and maybe you even tried to talk to somebody about it and they told you you didn't really experience that. Or just let it go. By the way, Absalom says to his sister Tamar as she comes there, he says, I'll take care of you. Now let this thing go. Don't take this to heart. Terrible advice. Here she is saying openly, this has been done to me. I've got to process this somehow. Somebody may have signaled to you that you should just sit and be quiet about this. I think we need to be careful about how we share information, yes, but you need to know God sees you, God knows you, God, the Father, different from the Father David. By the way, you know that Jesus also had a robe, and as he walks to Calvary, this robe that is placed on him, purple of mockery of his kingdom come. And he is stripped and beaten and abused, not in this exact same way, but he knows what you feel. And he came here to sacrifice himself for you in the midst of your pain. This is part of what the world doesn't understand. They'll look at a story like this and they'll say, David, God's people, clearly there is no God. And God says, put the story in, put the story in because I see you. I feel your pain. And you need to know that your Father above has a perfectly clean white robe to cover you with. One of the most amazing parts in the New Testament is a little verse I first learned because it was easy and I had to learn one. Jesus wept. But I wonder if you stripped out so much of Scripture, if that shouldn't occupy about 30 of the books of the Bible. Because if you know the story, Lazarus has just died. He comes to Lazarus' sisters and all those weeping and mourning, and he sees their pain, and he doesn't say, by the way, I'm just about to walk over there and raise Lazarus from the dead. Calm down, everybody. 
He says, look, you need to understand the heart of God weeps with those who weep. Broken by that which breaks you. Even when he can already see the healing. If you have gone through something like this, it is possible you need some help. I'm just going to put a couple of resources on the screen. Our North American division has a campaign. End it now, North America. In an attempt to highlight, talk about, and resource these very kinds of circumstances. One of the things you'll notice on that website is that they have information for the National Domestic Violence Hotline and the website associated with it where there are stories of encouragement, resources to take advantage of, and a hotline you can call. One of the things you'll notice if you go there, one of the first things that'll happen is a little message will pop up on your computer that says, hey, by the way, be aware, sometimes if you're on the right kind of systems, people can know what websites you're accessing So before you type out some sort of a message, consider who might be viewing what you're sharing, and maybe you should call instead. They're very thoughtful, very well aware. But maybe that's all just too distant and impersonal. I would encourage you, if you don't know it, our church has a counseling center, and there's a direct telephone line to that counseling center. It doesn't go through our office. You can make a phone call and ask to set an appointment. They're not here all the time, so regularly you won't get a live voice. You'll just simply leave your name and a message that you would like to try to schedule an appointment. And professional counselors are volunteering to spend time in our counseling center, and we work through our church setting. If there's some finances that need to be involved, we work on that. You need to know there's a resource there. And if you can't get a hold there or you just want to talk to one of the pastors, our main office number, either 7100 or 7110, I encourage you to take your pain into the light. It occurs to me that out of the characters in this story, not everyone here is Tamar. Some of us are Amnon. And you need to hear that Jesus came for you. And as he does so, he comes not simply to leave you the way you are, but to rescue your heart, extend you grace, and change your world. Somebody here It's years and years and years old now, but it haunts you in the night. And you deserve to be clean. You deserve to be forgiven. You deserve to have help walking through how you recover. And maybe forgiveness you need to seek. Restitution may need to be pursued. But it's fascinating because we live now in a Me Too movement world, right? 
And in many ways, some of us have even chosen to politicize this conversation as if it's a political thing rather than a spiritual warfare. As we look around at the world around us, by the way, you will notice the world has no answer. The answer of the world is to punish someone once we find out. There is more light that is attempting to be shed and we use phrases like toxic masculinity. Again, we know it is not just males that are abusers, but it is by far a more male issue than female. But that can actually twist things if we're not careful. You should know that a proper understanding of toxic masculinity is not that all men are toxic, but that there is a way of pursuing your masculinity that is. It includes phrases like, well, you know, boys will be boys. And whether it is catcalling along a sidewalk or bullying in a grade school, it is not the plan of Jesus Christ. Whether it is when we tell our boys or girls, you know what, real boys, big boys, men don't cry. We don't show our emotions, we pack it all under and away. And by the way, you really want to indicate that you are powerful, you're probably going to be a little bit violent or a little bit rough in ways that are domineering. Some of the associated problems sociologists will tell us with this toxic masculinity. What I mean to say, parent, is if your child is raised with those kinds of perspectives, whether by you or those you abdicate your parentage to, your son is more likely to experience disciplinary problems in school, academic problems at school, cardiovascular problems through the course of their life, substance abuse is a much higher predilection, and depression is sure to follow. Or at least that's what research tells us. And I would say to you that this issue, one of our problems is, at times we are leaving, working out and working on these issues for men to women. This needs to be worked on by men. But the world has very little to fix this situation. If you want to go to a godless science, you're going to end up with things like survival of the fittest, which leads us right straight here. You're going to be looking around and seeing who's the king of the jungle. Well, it's the lion. Well, the big male lion tries to kill all the other lions, gets to sleep with the rest of the female lions, all his own. By the way, they go then to head out to get food, which he decides to chase them off and eat first. Yeah, see, this is what a godless world looks like. But I want to suggest to you the God of Genesis. It is one of, by the way, one of the problems of taking Genesis and destroying the creation story is that we end up with men and women who do not have the design of the creator in their life. I want to give you four evidences of God's design that we find in Genesis 1 and 2 for Adam that if Amnon had possessed even one of these qualities, the story would never have happened this way. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. As we rush to the close, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. 
Those words could be to help it flourish and to guard it. You want to know what it means to be a true man? It is to help anybody, anything in the room you enter to flourish and to guard them. That goes for you, Amnon. That goes for you, Jonadab. Could it be possible that we do just about as much damage by participating in the locker room, joking, or not stepping up to stop it? Flourish and guard, that's the first. You keep going into verses 16 and 17, and the Lord commanded to the man, you are free to eat from the tree of the, of, the, of, the, of the garden, any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Why am I bringing that up? Because Eve is not created yet. And God shares this information to Adam, and yet somehow Eve ends up knowing it. Now, yes, it's possible that God drew Eve aside for a specific conversation, but I believe it is true to principle to understand this. God asks men to carry the word of God into any room they enter. We can get stuck on things like male headship and all that sort of stuff. No, no, let's boil it down to the simple truth. When you, young man or older alike, enter the room, do you walk in with the word of God? Fascinating. Tamar does. The third, I would point to you, I'll dip back into the first chapter. It could be found in the second, but it's so much clearer and compelling in the first chapter of Genesis in the 27th verse. God is deciding he's going to make mankind in his image. And so in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It is a part of what it means to be, be a man that when you see a woman, you see the image of God that you are not objectifying them, that you have not seen them as a, something to be possessed by you. It is the image of God. Oh, that Amnon had that view. And finally, back to the second chapter in this beautiful close, the 24th and 25th verse. This is why the writer says, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. It is ultimately what masculinity should be about, that they would help to flourish and to guard, that they would carry the word of God, that they would see the image of God in the other, and that they would create an environment in which sexuality in marriage is without shame. We could just drop the in marriage part because that's how it is without shame. Oh, that we would teach our littlest boys, our teenagers, our young men, and older as well, that our only way out of what seems to be a pervasive and desperate problem is following the design of God. I can tell you the world does not have a plan to get us out of this. And finally, parent and church member. 
we cannot shrink back from the hard conversations. One of the worst, I believe, parts of this story is what we're left to imagine David must be thinking. And we are left to imagine it because he doesn't speak in this chapter to Tamar himself. You don't see him like Jesus would describe the father on the porch looking from a distance and seeing his daughter. Struggle home. Robe torn, face dirty, shame filled to cover the distance and scoop her in his arms. You don't see it. Hopefully it's there, we just don't know, but you don't see it. Instead, you see by the end of the chapter a father weeping that his son Amnon has been slain without having done anything. We must stand up, step up, speak in, draw close. Father, mother, when you don't know what to say, sit close. And church member, family, we are called to be what fathers and mothers have not been. Many are the students in our university who suffer. Many are the students in our school system who suffer and often at the hands of someone in their very own family. Imagine how confusing it is to come to church and hear us talk about the Father's love. But in the midst of all of this, we must be proclaiming boldly and proudly that we serve a different Father. We serve a God who comes to save. We serve a God that brings peace and reconciliation and draws us close and redeems. And He knows. He knows what you struggle with. You need not be a rebel no matter what you've done or what's happened to you. Lord God, what a tough chapter. What, what in the world are you thinking, including this sort of stuff, and then leading us right into it at Christmas time, for goodness sakes. Maybe you're thinking that the holidays are sometimes the hardest time for those who have suffered. Maybe you are thinking that we are way too comfortable sitting next to our sons and daughters who suffer, our grandsons and granddaughters who suffer, our grandparents who suffer, the student who is next to us, the one in my study group or my roommate or maybe co-worker. Lord God, make us tender-hearted toward one another. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. And I don't want to let you go without saying this. I don't always, we don't always know what to do, but I do know this. Our team, our pastoral staff, cares deeply for you. 
And if you are struggling and you don't know where to turn or what to do, I challenge you to test this. Come and talk to one of us. Set, call up, set an appointment. We will be highly confidential and honor you. We will try to understand ourselves well enough to know what we are not capable of dealing with and connect you. We will divert our budgets, our time, our love to your need. So test us on that. And now, church family, in the midst of such a tough, challenging conversation, go with the God who loves us and saves us, and happy Sabbath to you.